electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Power Launch, along with Contessa Brewer. I am Tyler Matheson. We got two big themes today, big tech and Fed speak. We got them both covered. First, Google cutting jobs like so many other tech companies, bringing back its founders like many other companies. It's Netflix soaring on strong subscriber numbers and the ripple effects of Apple trying to do more in-house. Plus, we just heard from Fred, uh, Fed Governor Christopher Waller. We'll get live reaction to his comments, what they mean for the market, and let's get a check on the market. Stocks are higher right now, although all three averages in the red for the week, the Dow with a 3% loss for the week so far, but as you can see, up half a percent right now on the Dow, the S&P 500 up 1.25%, NASDAQ is up 1.98%, and you've got the Russell 2000 up a percent as well, Tyler. All righty, uh, we got uh, Google and Netflix strongly higher at this point, and, and that is helping to lift that NASDAQ 100, as we mentioned. We begin with the major tectonic shifts reverberating across the market. Uh, some huge headlines across Silicon Valley and the tech space. Google's CEO, Sundar Pichai, notifying employees that the company will lay off 12,000 workers. This comes after Amazon and Microsoft laid off a combined 28,000 employees. Netflix blowing away subscriber expectations thanks to some streaming hits and announcing its founder, Reed Hastings, will step down as co-CEO. And finally, as if that's not all enough, growing signs that Apple's suppliers could be at risk as the company shifts ever more toward producing components in-house. But we start with those Alphabet and Google layoffs. Joining us to break it all down is CNBC.com tech reporter Jennifer Elias and Needham analyst Laura uh, Laura, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. Let's begin with Jen. Uh, Laura Martin of, uh, of Needham. Um, Jen, let's begin with you. Tell us about the layoffs and what they hope to accomplish by doing it. And then, Laura, I'm going to follow up with a rather pointed question for you. Yeah, so, Tyler, this is the company uh, conducting a trim of the workforce. As you mentioned, 12,000, that's roughly 6% of the employee base. And really, when you look at the context of the numbers, uh, while the number looks big, um, comparatively to how it's been hiring over the last couple of years, this is um, not much compared to what it's hired, even over like the, the course of a quarter. Um, so this is the company definitely making a trim. Um, and I think what they hope to accomplish with this is what CEO Sundar Pichai said, is that you know they overhired during the pandemic like many other tech companies. Um, so he did take some responsibility for that. And that the, the, they need to run a little bit leaner. Um, they definitely grew headcount a huge percent. I mean, um, last quarter they had reported uh, almost an over 20% year-over-year headcount increase to their yeah, employee I think that's, base. That's unmistakably true that a lot of these companies overhired in the middle of the uh, of the pandemic. Where are most of these uh, cuts, Jen, likely to come? Are they in engineers? Are they office people? What? 
Yeah, so far we're seeing across the board, and I think, you know, we're still trying to pinpoint where the cuts are happening because it's only being sent to direct employees um, and they're not notifying teams as much. But we are seeing uh, lower level um, employees, managers, engineers, developer advocates. Um, it's sort of across the board so far mm -hmm. from what we can say, sales I, and marketing. Jen, I'm, I, I'm interested, too, that it's not just the cuts that are happening, but also delays now in bonus checks. Is there a reason why they're delaying them? Yeah, so the company, we found, changed the timeline for how it evaluates employees. And they decided to start that this year. Um, and told employees over the last few months, but some didn't get the memo because they are used to getting theirs at a certain time. So we had reported that, you know, those were, and so with the growing anxiety with employees wondering if, you know, they're going to be next in the tech layoffs, there was some concern over whether that was related to, um, you know, pushing off some of the costs. Um, Google has denied that, but um, we, we are listening to our sources, and they, they seem to think that could be part of it. Uh, and let me ask you about this report that Larry Page and Sergey Brin might be called back in. Why and for what purpose? Right. So you're referring to the New York Times report um, that said that Larry and Sergey had been brought in to basically weigh in on the company's AI road, roadmap for its artificial intelligence and its products. As we saw with OpenAI, the small San Francisco startup that came out with ChatGPT, this very popular over the last few months um, chatbot, uh, the company has been looking to respond. And we have reported that they've been telling people internally, employees, hey, we're working on this. This is something we have to think about. But there are more things we have to take into account as a large company if we are going to come out with something competitive around ChatGPT. So supposedly, um, it's similarly in line with what they plan on doing as a response to that. Um, the company hasn't confirmed with us yet. The report has come out this morning. Um, but it's possible that, you know, they, Sergey and Larry have no interest in uh, coming back in a role yeah. of CEO or president. They, they have no interest in the common core advertising business or search business. But they are definitely still involved in some of the more experimental projects. Yeah. Laura, uh, Jen, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for sharing your reporting. Jen Elias for CNBC.com. For more on Alphabet, let's bring in Needham's Laura Martin. Laura, it's good to talk to you. Uh, let, just first of all, your reaction to these cuts, the cost-saving measures that are coming at a time when we're also seeing ad spending plummeting as well. I think this is a really positive development because on the last call they said, we don't care, we're running a long-term business, we're going to keep growing costs, which is not what the market wants to hear. Right now the market wants free cash flow. And I think Wall Street doesn't want them to cut search employees. We don't want them to cut YouTube employees. What we want them to cut is shut down businesses in a division that they call moonshots, which means it's going to pay off someday after the metaverse pays off. We want them to shut down those employees and shut down those businesses because these guys are supposed to be running a business, which is a return on capital idea, not quasi-governmental R&D that may pay off or not 15 years from now. They shouldn't be public and do that. That should be done in a private enterprise funded by something else, not public shareholders. So I would like to see them take all of these employees out of moonshots. Okay, well, what do you think are the moonshots? I mean, is it uh, chat GPT and the AI chatbots? What do you consider moonshots? 
Now they're losing billions of dollars and chat GPT is no, I mean, I think what's shameful about the chat GPT is that these guys, Google was way ahead on AI for many, many years. So I'm a little confused and they spent tens of billions of dollars doing R&D on AI. So I'm a little confused as to how a little startup has beat them to the punch. Now, admittedly, chat GPT gives a lot of wrong answers and, and Google can't do that. With Google search, they have to give right answers. But um, it will help Google if ChatGPT goes to a, re a subscription revenue source because that will leave search free. So that will be and, and supported by ads like Google is. So that will actually save Google and buy them some time. But I am very surprised that Google isn't in front of this AI stuff and they're now playing catch up to the GPT startup. One stray thought, Laura, and then I'll ask a question. The stray thought is this. With so many of these big tech companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, I wonder whether they're each sort of giving cover to one another uh, to, to take those kinds of cuts. Fair, fair yeah. point, fair observation? Yeah, I think so. I think Google, so long as Meta and Microsoft and Apple were saying we're not laying people off, Google was saying that, too. Now that they've got high cover from almost every other tech company, and, they're like, yeah, we're going to lay off people, too. And, I mean, a little bit because of COVID. The inmates are running the prison here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and then the other point is, you know, look at what happened at Twitter. Uh, so many, a lar much larger percentage of workers uh, went away. There. And that, that operation seems to still be operating. But let me ask you this. Let me cut to the Martin Chase here. And that is that you think... Google is worth more broken up than it is as a whole. Do you anticipate that happening in any uh, scenario that you can, you can foresee? So, you know, we had the Needham uh, 25th Annual Growth Conference last week, and we had an FCC commissioner on stage, and big as that in Washington, D.C., and I think there is a non-zero probability that they actually decide that Google's too big and it needs to be broken up, which would be great for the share price, in my opinion. I would very, and by the way, then you'd really, really have to shut down other, these other bets, these moonshots that they fund. All right, Laura, thanks very much. You can never get too much, Laura Martin, and, and we're going to prove it because you're going to come back later in the show to discuss Netflix earnings. We'll see you then. All righty, coming up, part two of our Techapalooza. Netflix soaring on its subscriber numbers. The stock up 6% today, 55% in the past six months. That big Netflix move has put Ryan Reynolds' Mountain Goats into first place in our stock draft with only three weeks to go. His teammate Mark Douglas will join us to discuss Netflix and who gets to keep the trophy if they hold on to win. But first, markets reacting to comments from Fed Governor Christopher Waller on CNBC last hour. We'll break down what it all means for the markets and interest rates. Do stay with us, please. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to Power Launch. While the Fed is making progress in the battle with inflation, or so it seems, many Fed officials are still hammering that, that their work is not done and that rates will not drop anytime soon. In the last hour, we heard from Christopher Waller, who says the markets seem to think inflation will just melt away, and the Fed doesn't think that will happen. In a new op-ed, Ron Insana says the solution to inflation is more workers. Joining us now is Ron Insana, Insana senior analyst for CNBC and a commentator. Well, getting up and leaving. Yeah, David Wessel was there. Now he's not there. It's okay. Yeah, you know, David like Wessel. this. You know what? He's like this. We're going to start with Ron Insana. Then fine, I'm out of here. I didn't even mention David Wessel's name, and he got up and walked <laughs> out. I, he's trying to adjust my lighting to CNBC standards. Yeah, oh, okay, you. good. Well, you're beautiful. <laughs> Let me just say this, David. You are lit. <laughs> you are lit. David Wessel is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Let me start, David, by asking you, how much does the kerfuffle, and it's going to be seemingly more than that, over the, raising the debt ceiling uh, stay the hand of the Fed or complicate what the Fed is doing? Um, I think it's a big threat to the Fed uh, for a couple of reasons. If I were on the FOMC, God forbid, I would be working really hard to get all my rate increases done this spring so that when the con when the Treasury actually runs out of money, they're not forced to be pumping money into the system at the same time as they're raising rates. The second problem they have is, let's say Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling. Let's say the Treasury runs out of cash. What does the Fed do then? On one hand, they don't want to interfere in a political dispute. On the other hand, they have the responsibility to maintain uh, financial stability. And this is exactly the conundrum that the Bank of England faced a few months ago, and it's not pleasant. Ron, why don't you react to what David just uh, said? Yeah, listen, I agree wholeheartedly. And I, you know, I, if I would look for other reasons, I, I would not continue raising rates at this juncture. If I were the Federal Reserve, there's enough data to, to suggest that inflation is is rolling over meaningfully, and that you know some of the other aspects of it, wage inflation and the like, are probably peaking. So raising rates into a, a debt ceiling crisis, assuming there is one, would not be the most productive thing for the Federal Reserve to do. Now, granted, there's several months between now and when, you know, it, we really have a, a problem with respect to the debt limit somewhere around June uh, that, that push comes to shove and we could default on, on some of our obligations. But even still, the amount of uncertainty uh, that would be engendered by raising rates and grappling with the debt ceiling might be a little bit much for the markets to bear. It's really clear that uh, Waller is predicting and is trying to communicate to the markets you guys that are factoring in any sort of pivot are getting it all wrong. I mean, he basically said there's not going to be any rate cuts in 2023. I'm just curious to hear him talk, uh, David, about the fact that, look, we were watching inflation. We watched it decline, 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 decline. And then suddenly this big turnaround and spike, it could happen again, even though we're seeing all the signs that we're getting a handle on inflation. We're worried about another spike coming down the road. Do you think that that makes sense for them to still be hitting the brakes? Well, I think what he said was, we're going to raise rates another 75 basis points, and we are not going to cut them unless we're really sure that inflation is dead. And I think the difference between Governor Waller and the markets is really one about an economic forecast. 
if inflation is still coming down three months from now, and if the unemployment rate has gone up a lot, then I suspect the Fed will begin to pivot. But he's made quite clear, and I think Jay Powell has said the same thing. If you want to know what risk am I willing to take, I'd rather take the risk of doing too much than doing too little. And Governor Waller is clearly in that camp. Ron, you say that the uh, labor market, which the which the Fed has focused on, is not tight because uh, the economy is so strong, but it is tight because there simply aren't enough people to fill yeah. the jobs that are out there. You cite a variety of, of uh, factors that play into that, uh, COVID-related deaths, long COVID, early retirements, and so forth. But isn't it also the case that lots of workers don't want the jobs that are out there waiting to be filled or needing people, or they, that, that the workforce doesn't have the skills uh, to fill the jobs that are out there waiting? Well, it's a, that's an interesting damned if you do, damned if you don't proposition that, that you just outlined uh, with respect to that title. Because look, I mean, number one, the unemployment rate is extremely low. So arguing that there are people not taking jobs is, is, is an impossibility. We're at the lowest unemployment rate in, in four decades, at least. And, and, and there are some jobs, of course, that are going wanting. There are some jobs that people won't take. Uh, that is true. Uh, but generally speaking, look, we're looking at the lowest unemployment rate, as I said, in 40 or 50 years. And so we're short people. We, we are literally missing about 5 million people in the labor force. And again, you cited you know, some of the reasons why, whether it's those who have passed from COVID. You know, and, and, and Jay Powell himself identified this not too long ago, that we've lost about a half million people who would otherwise be in the labor force. We've seen two and a half million people retire early with no intention of coming back. Many women have left the labor force initially to take care of their kids during the pandemic, but with the cost of childcare having gone up, there's no benefit to them going back because it's a break-even proposition. So from my perspective, we should be opening the floodgates on the immigration front, which is not something that is currently being debated. And I think this is a missed opportunity, uh, no matter where people come from. Uh, to restock the labor force. Our birth rate has fallen substantially, 1.6 children per family. That's below the 2.1% uh, 2.1 child replacement rate. So I think we have some structural issues that if these go unacknowledged are going to be a problem down the road and, and Fed policy simply won't cure this problem. It's almost the, as though Congress is so focused on whatever soap opera is developing in Washington, D.C. day of that it's not handling these big picture you know, uh, 30,000 feet view that's needed to solve the problem. One is immigration and, and the lack of skilled labor coming in. But the other one, Ron and, and David, I want to hear your thoughts on this, is the fact that the debt ceiling just keeps being this, this issue that they come back. They like to trot it out and whip that horse and make headlines off of it. But there's a real economic impact, don't you think? Yes. So I think Ron is right that we have a long-term labor force problem. Some of it is labor force participation, some of it's immigration. And these are things that policy can't cure, but policy can help with. And so the whole debt ceiling debate is a complete political theater with no upside. The Republicans like to argue that, oh, we're going to use the debt ceiling to put the federal spending on and taxes on a sustainable course. But that's really not what's going to happen. We're going to have a lot of arguing, and that prevents you from having the conversations that we need to have about a debt that's rising faster than we can afford and how to think about how to reshape spending and taxes to deal with it. So it's really discouraging, and I think it erodes public confidence in the government because they're doing this instead of 
dealing with the real problem. Ron, last word. Uh, I trot out Simpson Bowles and use that as a <laughs> a, um, a blueprint for future uh, spending and and and. Uh, other uh, uh, expenditures by the federal government to bring things in line, at least in the short run. Ron and Sana, good to see you, my friend. David Wessel, thank you for uh, getting up, fixing your own light, you know, being a one-man <laughs> band. It, the, the things that we've all learned to do during the pandemic, yes. right? Thank you. Up next, some big money pouring out of the industrial space this week. The industrial ETF, the XLI, down nearly 4% in a week. We're going to take a look at those moves next. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Time now for our weekly ETF tracker. And this week, we're looking at industrials. Those funds seeing outflows of $300 million this week, according to our partners at Track Insight. Now, some of the big stocks in the group are getting hit hard this week. We saw a big drop in industrial production, leading to increased recession fear. So you've got Honeywell, 3M, Deer, and Caterpillar all down this week. I'm looking at Deer right now, down almost 7%. The ETFs in this space, the sector spider, Vanguard, iShares, Fidelity, all down 3 or 4%. If you want more information on that, you can check out the FT Wilshire ETF hub. Yes, you can. Ahead on Power Lunch, our tech rundown continues. After the break, we will dig into Netflix's eventful earnings report, the company making quite the comeback from its earnings missteps of 2022. But this subscriber step forward comes as Reed Hastings steps, takes a step back. Power Lunch will be right back. Hey, welcome back to Power Lunch. Here's what's happening at this hour. Abortion opponents by the thousands are in Washington for the March for Life. They are celebrating the Supreme Court dismantling constitutional rights to abortion. Rally comes just days before the 50th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that established abortion rights. A judge has ruled that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis does not have to give a top state attorney his job back. DeSantis fired state attorney Andrew Warren for pledging not to enforce state anti-abortion laws. And get this, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been fined for not wearing his seatbelt while filming a social media video in a moving car. Spokesman for Sunak says the Prime Minister has acknowledged it was a mistake and says he will comply with the police fine. But being Britain, you could see Contessa, the, the steering wheel is on the other side of the car. He was not driving, but still... Always belt up. Even in the backseat, you should belt. No. And, and he's the prime minister, and he's got to set an example for everybody else. So if you uh, do the crime, you got to pay the fine. Thanks, Beretta. <laughs> Brian, thank you. 90 okay. minutes left in the trading day. Let's get caught up here on the markets. We've got stocks and bonds and commodities to get to, plus that big gain in Netflix. Bob Pisani gets us kicked off with uh, some green across the board. Bob? And it's looking good here. Uh, we are ending the week on a positive note. We're down for the week, but we're up almost 3% for the for the month. Just take a look at the, the bounce back we've had after some 
poor earnings yesterday. The S&P leaderboard, uh, Synchrony Financial, Capital One. Remember what happened the other day? Of course, uh, we had some of the uh, card names uh, Discover disappointed. And uh, so a lot of these big card names like Amex, Capital One, Synchrony, all were down. Well, they're all bouncing back. Now, Key Corp also disappointed a little bit on its earnings report uh, the other day. And it, too, is bouncing back. So disappointing earnings down one day, bouncing back. The market kind of wants to move up a little bit. NVIDIA also on the board amongst uh, the leadership. Uh, the laggards today, it's kind of a strange little group. Goldman Sachs was doing well. And then right in the middle of the day, we had reports that the Federal Reserve was investigating Goldman's uh, consumer business to determine whether the bank had uh, safeguards in place as it ramped up the lending. That stock dropped in the middle of the day. Eli Lilly was down after the FDA rejected an Alzheimer's candidate. And boy, the pharma stocks are having a tough time of it this year. A lot of them are down four, five, six percent. Lilly's down about six percent uh, for the year. But these defensive stocks are having a hard time. And look at what's going on with Conagra and Smuckers. These uh, the consumer names are just having a tough time for the start of the year overall. Smuckers is down about seven percent for this year. People want growth. So look at the S&P 500, as I mentioned, down for the week, but up about 3%. And it's the growth stuff. Semiconductors are up 11% in the last three weeks. Most big cap tech stocks, with the single exception of Microsoft, also trading to the upside. Communication services stronger, consumer discretionary. You know, guys, what this looks like? It looks like 2021 to me. All the consumer defensive names not doing much. And all the growth stocks are rallying in the first three weeks. Guys, back to you. All right, Bob, thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Now we go to the bond market. A big jump in yields today. Take a look at the 10-year note. Uh, getting close to 3.5%. We did get some hawkish comments from Fed Governor Waller in the last hour, and that certainly uh, contributes there. Yield on the 10-year note, 3.482. Oil closing for the day. Pippa Stevens at the commodity desk with the numbers. Pippa? Hey, Tyler, up more than 1% and wrapping up the fifth positive week in the last six. U.S. oil is hovering right around 81.40 and is now approaching a key level. As this chart from Matt Maley over at Miller Tabak shows, WTI is bumping up, up against its 100-day moving average. The key level to watch here is 82.50, which provided tough resistance back in November. Topping that level would also mean breaking above the downtrend that we've seen over the last six months. Ultimately, he said this would be bullish for crude and energy stocks broadly, although a change in trend won't be confirmed until oil tops $93. Meantime, energy stocks also higher on the week. We did hear from SLB today reporting the highest EPS since 2015. The company also raised its dividend and is resuming its share buyback program. Recession fears might be rising, but SLB's management said they still think the backdrop looks, quote, very compelling. Tyler. All right. Thank you very much, Pippa Stevens. And next in our tech rundown today, Netflix is the second best S&P performer after crushing subscriber estimates and announcing a succession plan for its leadership team. Let's bring in Mark Douglas, CEO of Mountain, and Needham Senior Analyst Laura Martin returning with us once again. It's great to see you. Laura, let me begin with you. Uh, because they gave this uh, incredibly optimistic view on what they were able to do signing up new subscribers, did it persuade you that now might be a good time to get into Netflix? It didn't. We think it's too early. Um, they said their ad revenue will not be meaningful in 2023. And more importantly, 
They took a price increase last year, first quarter, and this year, the form of the price increase they're taking is they're going to basically disconnect any um, of your subscribers that are out of your home, so they're called those borrowers, and they're going to try to get rid of password sharing, which is a form of price increase. But unfortunately, that what that forces consumers to do, like me, who pays twenty dollars because I have kids all over the college, you know, using it, is it forces us to re, like reevaluate and downgrade to the nine dollar service, right? And then my kids have to subscribe separately. And I think that's really bad for inertia. I think inertia is the reason we have so many linear TV ecosystem subscribers. That that's a really powerful motivator. So they shouldn't be asking me to reevaluate downgrading my tier because I might just turn it off completely. It might be inertia, and it also might just be that once a year there's a there's a program on traditional television that the family wants to watch, and then what are you supposed to do? But I digress. Mark, you and Ryan Reynolds picked Netflix for your CNBC stock draft. You're yeah. winning because of it. Congratulations. If the draft Thank were you. held today, would you still pick Netflix? Um, well, certainly the stock price a year ago it was a lot more attractive than it is now. But I think what you're seeing is Netflix traditionally has led in the media business. Like a lot of the innovations you've seen in streaming have come from Netflix. And I think now you're seeing with the management change they're making, they're gearing up to lead some more. And so, yeah, I would I would invest in the manage, management team at Netflix for them to navigate the ad business, for them to navigate the password sharing. And they're essentially generate more growth. And so I think that the, any investor looking at Netflix now, um, the, it's a good time. Given the ad landscape right now, where we're seeing so many companies worried about what's coming down the pike, and in fact, Laura and I were talking earlier about that happening with Google and what's happening with YouTube and the search ads and all of that. Uh, is, is it now a good time for Netflix to be launching the ad part of this business? Well, I think they have. Is that for me? Is that yeah, for, yeah, yeah, Mark? I want you to yeah, answer me. that. Yeah, I think I think they have no choice. I mean, in terms of is is it the best time? In some ways, it's not. And the reason for that is you have a lot of supply coming into the market from Netflix, from Disney Plus, but you're seeing demand pulled back on the behalf of especially large brand advertisers. So those big brand advertisers responding to macroeconomic conditions are just generally definitely not increasing their spend and they, in a lot of cases, are decreasing it. So that classically sets up for a price war, a decrease in prices. So it's not an ideal time, but I think people, these advertisers are really excited about Netflix at the right price. And so Netflix will still navigate that. Laura, I take your point that Netflix has a lot of moving parts to deal with, ads, uh, password sharing, pricing and the like, um, which all lead you to say this is not the time to get into Netflix. What would change your opinion? What would you like to see that would make you go, this stock, even after its run up, is investable to me? So it's trading at 33 times net a PE on this year, and it's going to—it's had sub-growth deceleration. It was 4% in the most recent, which means to get to double-digit growth, you must have price increases of 8% every single year. I don't think that can happen. So what I would want to see is not only the ability to raise price, which apparently they can, I would want to see user or sub-growth. Users would be fine if they're ad-driven, no problem. But 
since they say advertising is not going to be meaningful, I don't know how many users are getting of their ad revenue here. Just not sure. I would like to see both user growth and pricing growth. Do they so have to be- have big mega hits to drive subscriber growth, Laura, like uh, Harry and Meghan, Glass Onion, whatever? Yep. It's a hit-driven business, and Wall Street hates with hit-driven businesses because they're not annuity streams. Right. And and the fact is, Mark, we've seen other streamers decide that they're going to dole out big hits episode by episode and make you wait for a week. I guess I'm assuming it's because they don't want everybody going in, binge watching it and then canceling the service after one month. Is Netflix going to be able to continue to allow people to binge watch these big hits that are may drive new subscriber growth? Yeah, I mean, so I always think of Netflix as they're the service you watch when there are no big hits on any place else. So they have their own hits, but they have so much content that when you just turn on the TV and you're just looking for something to watch, you generally, from my perspective, you go to Netflix. And that's why there have been every you know household kind of number one choice for streaming. So I think hits are important. They've driven the business, but I don't think that they are really the core reason you get Netflix. And so for that reason, they can continue to release all the shows at one time. And also, I just wanted to add on Laura's comment on the previous question. I agree with Laura that driving subscriber growth to get to those numbers is going to be difficult. But I also think Netflix is sandbagging expectations in terms of ad business. Um, Jeremy Gorman and the team there were at Snap. They were at Disney, Hulu. They know how to build multi-billion dollar ad businesses. And I think you'll see that develop faster than Netflix is is setting expectations for it. Mark Douglas, Laura Martin, it's great to talk to both of you. Thank you very much. You know what I'm noticing, Tyler? We've Mm. got these we've got these setups here. I look like I'm looking at Mark. I look like I'm looking at Laura, but they can't see that. So you have to say somebody's name. Mark's like, is that for me? They can't see you. No, no, no. And now and now everyone who's listening on Sirius is saying, Contessa, what are you talking about? But this is the way it works. No, I love our new it. reality. All right. Let's move on to the busy week for the market. Several Fed officials weighing in on the future of the economy. We're going to talk about how to position your portfolio ahead of the upcoming Fed meeting. We're back in two minutes. Stocks near session highs right now. The Nasdaq has just poked into positive territory for the week. Still negative on the S&P 500 and Dow, however. The market's focus clearly on the Fed, but uh, earnings will be coming in hot and heavy over the next couple of weeks as well. Let's bring in David Wagner, Aptus Capital Portfolio Manager. David, we're three weeks basically into the new year. What is the stock market trying to tell us about itself and about the economy? Yeah, so, you know, I would probably start off by stating that I would probably fade this rally. It's really been a dash to trash all year long. I mean, just look, high beta has been outperforming low beta to the tune of 15% year to year to date. Not only that, the worst performers of last year are the best performers of this year. You know, case in point, Bitcoin, unprofitable tech, you know, the highest short interest. And, you know, our theme, we're big theme people here. And our theme heading into this year was actually from a Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's, we believe that investors 
uh, will be navigating a market in constant sorrow throughout the entire year. <laughs> what but does that mean? If I say that, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that you know we could beat you know last year's low low water mark of the S and P 500 by 18. percent I just it means I think that investors are underestimating the duration of a low return environment moving forward. I mean, I think I, our minds as investors are calibrated to think in V-shaped recoveries, and I, I just don't really see that happening here right now. I mean, so I, you I don't think, think we're going to stay roughly where? we are or maybe move lower? I mean, I'm, I'm having, I, I want to tease out your sort of bottom line me here. Yeah, I definitely think that we're going to continue to see an oscillating market. And that's definitely something that we have seen really back since the May of last year. So I'd be favoring some type of overriding strategies, understanding that given where we are on the debt ceiling and some type of inflation to growth frustration type of environment that, you know, we're going to continue to see maybe a higher volatility. So I would be overriding here right now if I had some type of strategy to choose. And, and you're really looking for yield then. Where are you looking? Yeah, yeah, Contessa. Like I said, we're, we're big theme people here. And here at Apple, that's actually our highest conviction here. We are thinking that our theme for this year is the year of the yield. And that's both across the equity market and the fixed income market. And I think that you could probably make that year of the yield plural or maybe even to the tune of decade of the year, decade of the yield. And we know that yield can come, pardon, we know that uh, total return can come from three different sources. It's going to be yield, it's going to be earnings growth, and it's going to be valuation expansion and contraction. And we're current uh, market valuations are right now and the expectation from my end of restrictive policy basically throughout the entire year, I just don't think valuation is going to be a reliable source of return moving forward into the future. And not only that, uh, earnings growth probably seems a little bit too optimistic right now, specifically on the operating margin side of that picture. So it's really tough for me to believe that you know we're going to be increasing earnings by 5% in 23, 14% heading into 2024. So again, another unreliable source of return. And that's why we're so gung-ho about uh, dividend yield right now. It's really the bird in hand rather than the two in the bush of valuation and earnings growth. So let's talk two specific stocks here, Broadcom, which you say has yield, and American Tower Corp. Yeah, so I think we'll start with the AMT here right now, because that was probably my most recent purchase in my high conviction portfolio. And obviously, it is in the real estate sector, and that is a yield-rich sector. But I'd be very honest with you, Contessa, it's been actually brutally battered over the last year as the valuation has really come in as it's been inversely correlated with rising interest rates. Now, I don't want to say that this is a play on, you know, that rates are going to come down, but I do think they will probably moderate in the interim. So I think that could really get this stock going. But overall, it's a really long-term holding. Um, you know, I don't mind buying it right now, even though I do think sell-side estimates are a touch bit higher. And, right qu- now, could and come quick down on Broadcom. To, oh, yeah. You know, um, regarding the theme year yield, you know, they've been increasing their dividend yield by 12% over the last three years on an annualized basis. Three and a half percent dividend yield. I think you get eight to nine percent growth here. So that is definitely over our watermark for ownership. David Wagner with Aptis Capital. Thank you. Appreciate that. After the break here, our final piece of today's tech-powered puzzle. Apple suppliers are struggling as the company shifts more of its component production in-house. More on that straight ahead. Welcome back. The last stop on this tech train ride. We've talked Google's layoffs and Netflix earnings. Now let's hit Apple, shall we? The company releasing several new products this week, demonstrating it is increasing reliance on in-house components rather than third-party suppliers. Steve Kovac joins us. What probably is going to be good for Apple, I would think would be a death knell for other suppliers. It could be. And Contessa, we're already seeing this to a degree. Just a couple years ago, they said, look, we're eventually going to phase out Qualcomm modems as, as our main modem inside 
uh, inside the okay. iPhone. And then we got a report just last week saying they're thinking about doing the same for the Wi-Fi chips that are made by Broadcom. So there's another stock that took a hit because of, of that Apple pulling out. Broadcom, by the way, 20% revenue exposure to Apple. So that's big. Then there are just a slew of other more minor names that, we, you know, maybe not common household names. Corvo is one of them. Lumentum, for example, they make the Face ID scanner in the front. All of these companies, uh, Sony, Samsung, Sharp, you name it, they all have significant revenue exposure. And one thing to watch for is Apple thinks they can uh, start bringing more of these components in-house. These are the names to watch as, as these reports are trickled. And to be clear, there are no reports that many of these are, are where still Where are the in-houses in where these yeah. things are being built? Where are the houses? Yeah. Are uh, they in the U.S.? Are they, are they, a lot does of Apple have huge, big chip fabs in somewhere that well, I don't there's know? There's a difference between where they're fabbed and where they're made. So let, let's talk about the Qualcomm modem, for example. They set up shop in San Diego, Qualcomm's backyard. They bought right. Intel's old modem business for a billion bucks, moved over to San Diego and said, we're going to build our own modem. We're tired of paying Qualcomm a few bucks for every iPhone we sell because of this licensing agreement they have with them. And they're going to do it in-house. Now it sounds like that report that we got last week saying they're going to do the same thing with Wi-Fi chips. Does that make it easier for them also to poach the talent? Absolutely. Why else set it up in in the backyard? Uh, Speaking of talent, we've gotten a lot of headlines about these other tech giants Mm -hmm. laying off people, big layoffs, you know, 6 percent. Tens of thousands. uh, uh, 10,000 Google or 12,000 Google today. 10,000 Microsoft. What what about Apple? What's Apple doing on this scenario to to, uh, what we've seen is that the shareholders seem to like it. Yeah. And the first thing you've got to look at, Contessa, is how much did they hire in the pandemic compared to their rivals? Not as much. I think it was during the three years, uh, end of 2019 through the beginning, something like they only grew 20 percent. We have a chart of this. The others grew, you know, Amazon grew 100% during the pandemic. So they didn't grow as rapidly and they hired more deliberately, unlike some of their rivals. So they, and, and by the way, when macro conditions started getting worse last year, they, they scaled back on how aggressively they were hiring even more than they normally do. So they don't have as much uh, fat to cut as some of their rivals do. So let's go back to, to sort of Item number one for Apple, uh, they want to cut their dependence on these other suppliers. Mm. Got it. Do they want to cut their dependence on Chinese manufacturing? And are they when are they going to be brave enough to actually <laughs> say that? Yeah, that's uh, they can't <laughs> right now. I mean, it's just physically impossible and financially impossible for them to do it. Over a decade ago, they set up the supply chain such that they're reliant. The iPhone city where we saw all those protests last fall. That's that's where the hype. That's the core. That's it. Of, that, it's not it, but it's almost. But that's it. the big yeah, thing. It's, that's it's, the big. It's almost, and yeah. that's why they're likely going to sell fewer iPhones than they thought they were going to sell last year because they had all their eggs in that one basket. We're seeing little ways that they are, you know, trying to alleviate that pressure. But again, it's China, 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 and they're at, stuck at the whims of whatever the COVID policy might be, whatever yeah. the worker policy might be, and they're they're learning that lesson the hard way over the last year and a half. All right, Steve, thanks very much. Have a great weekend. You too, guys. Good to to see you. All right, still to come to round out this big uh, tech rundown, our three-stock lunch trader will tell us whether she is buying Alphabet and a couple of others. We'll be right back. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Three-stock lunch. We're tracking some of the big movers of the day. Alphabet, higher on news that it is laying off about 6% of its global workforce, about 12,000 employees. Wayfair also announcing job cuts to about 10% of its staff as part of cost-saving plans. And SVP Financial, higher despite reporting a fourth-quarter miss and rising operating costs. 
Here to trade us is, or trade them, I hope I, I'm not getting traded here, Ava Otto. She's Chief Investment Strategist at ER Shares. Ava, it's great to talk to you. Let's start with Alphabet here. Uh, what do you make of the layoffs and how it affects your view of the stock? Well, actually, we're even more optimistic now. It's actually one of our favorite mega cap uh, stocks, if not the favorite, especially from a valuation perspective. Uh, when it comes to their enterprise value, to their future um, revenues, that's one half to one third of its period. It's also one of the few companies in the tech category which is primarily focused on, on the bottom line. So we see their net income, income margin at 10 times its peers. And in fact, we see their profits that have doubled in the last two years and their revenue growth is well above their peers. Uh, this action today with uh, with cost cu cutting is also uh, drives home the fact that they're cutting costs, they're maintaining and uh, keeping their margins co constant, if not increasing them. So we're uh, especially optimistic for them. It's a buy. Let's move on to number two, which is Wayfair. It's laying off workers too. It doesn't want to be left out here. 1,750 workers. What do you think? Another buy. Um, I think their earnings today today is a good signal for their viability and their future growth. But let's not forget that was COVID, darling. The revenues went up 50% during the COVID era, and as a result, their SG&A skyrocketed. And so they now have an imbalance. Their SG&A costs are 50% above pre-COVID level, levels, while, while their revenues are only 30% above pre-COVID levels. So what they're doing now is they're recalibrating, they're resetting the balance. And so um, together with their prior cost-cutting announcement this summer, they're, they're cutting one and a half billion in cost. That will take them well past break even. They're on their way to profitability. That's the key news today for Wayfair. All right. The final name is SVB Financial. It missed on earnings. How's it positioned for the long term? That's a hold. I like the fact that in, in, a, in a tough era for tech stocks in the last couple of years, when, when VCs and private equity firms scaled back on their investments when it came um, to tech especially, Silicon Valley uh, took um, filled in that vacuum, so they benefited opportunistically. And so that's reflected today on their margins, on their earnings announcements. And so the reason why it's a hold and not a buy is that they're up 26% year to date. So a lot of optimism, a lot of the upside potential, potential Potential has already been realized, and their P/E ratio is 50% above their peers. So uh, I would encourage investors in the future to add to their positions in soft days. However, it's just a hold for now. Look at that price performance there, up 15%. Ava Ados, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your perspective. Well, you know, there's the Dow up 222 points near the highs of the day. For the month so far, curiously, the Dow is basically flat, up a quarter of a percent. Uh, similar gains for other uh, markets as well. There you see it uh, on your screen right there. You know what this is? This is the 30th anniversary of the inauguration of Bill Clinton. How about that? I, how uh, can I be that old? Fact, <laughs> a useless fact that you can. Thanks for watching Power Lunch. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.